Well, recapping what we've done in the previous two weeks as we've started in this book, of course, is taking a look the first week we studied. We studied verses 1 through 8, and we uh, made a point of making sure that we understood that this apocalypsis, this revelation, is an unveiling. It carried with it for many years in our current culture somewhat of a doom and gloom, but in the time of John's writing, it was an exciting thing. This would be an unveiling of, and it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It was not only uh, an unveiling of Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ himself uh, revealing himself to John. And so we saw again that there was a promise there in verse 3 of the first chapter for a blessing for each and every one who, who reads, who hears, and keeps the words of this prophecy. So there's a promise for us as we go through this book, a special blessing, so to speak, promised to you and me from the throne of God. And then we saw last week in our second study in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, we saw that uh, John was placed for a purpose, that he was placed on the island of Patmos to receive the word of God, to know and experience a deeper work of the Spirit, to be given a clear understanding of the resurrected Jesus, to know him, the one who holds firmly the church in his hand, and that John was commanded to not be afraid. We applied those uh, things that we see were intended for John to us, that we've been placed here in this moment in time of December 2023, we've been placed here for a purpose, for the receiving of the word of God. The book of Acts tells us that uh, the times and our borders would have been prepared for God. It's no accident that you're living and I'm living in this day and age when we are seeing the things that we see take place in this world around us. And that we've been placed in this period of time and in this location, locale, for the purposes of receiving the word of God. For a deeper work of the spirit in our lives. For us to have a clear understanding of the resurrected Christ. To know that he holds the church firm in his hand. We can look around and, and look at you know the different expressions of church. Uh, but Jesus holds the true church in his hand and has not let go. He isn't relinquishing its control. He's not giving the keys over to Satan at any time and that we can trust these things and not be afraid. So as we come this morning now to this second chapter, we're reminded of what Jesus told John in the 19th verse of the first chapter, he told him to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And in the giving of that simple verse, 
the Lord himself giving it to John, John penning it and then sending this letter out is a very beautiful and, and clear outline of the book of Revelation. The things that he has seen there in chapter 1. The things which are the letters to the churches. And then as chapter 4 begins to unfold, John catapults, him. the Lord catapults John into this ability to see into the time in which the church will be gone after this, metatauta. And knowing that that's the outline, chapter 1, chapter 2 and 3, chapter 4 through the end of the book. Now we come into this you know, very clear and applicable section of our study, chapters 2 and 3, which are the letters to the churches. In each of the letters to the churches, there are similar things. Uh, we find that in each one of the letters there is uh, an address to a particular congregation, an introduction, if you will. There's <clears throat> a statement regarding the condition of that church, and there are seven churches mentioned. He gives, uh, in that condition, he often commends the church. We see also that there's a statement um, or a verdict, rather, from Jesus regarding the condition of the church at that time, observations that the Lord Jesus has made of what was going on in that church. We see in these similarities a command from the Lord about solutions to the things that he's observing and or a consequence if the solution is not heeded. We see general exhortations to Christians after the co command and after the solutions are presented and the consequences are <clears throat> placed. He often comes back again with a, con a commendation and a promise at the end of reward to inspire the reader, the disciple, to inspire us who are Christ. And so what becomes evidently clear is I bring us to verse 1 and 2 are again this introduction. We read it. He said, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And we saw in our study last week that the answer to any question about what he's saying is in the verse previous to the chapter. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand the seven, uh, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the churches 
and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, what he's saying is to the angel of the church of Ephesus. What is an angel? Well, predominantly through the scripture, angels were used to bring a message from God to mankind. Go from uh, Exodus forward. We see angels coming to uh, Joshua, to Elijah, to many of the prophets, and they're bringing a word from the throne of heaven to uh, planet earth, to mankind, to a God-seeker, God-follower. And so the angels represent those that speak to the churches. In our day and in our culture, it is uh, the leader or a pastor. So to the, the messenger to the church, write. And he clearly introduces himself as uh, the one who holds the churches in his hand and the one who walks in the midst of the churches. So here is Jesus. This is an unavoidable observation. Those of us that might at times do what we call uh, inductive Bible study. In inductive Bible study, it's very clear that we what we're to do is take scripture and, and observe, 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 observe. Who, what, when, where. And I hope that's a, a practice that each of us can employ in our, our daily reading, our Bible study, because it is in the observation process of inductive Bible study that uh, the interpretation begins to emerge. And what's an unavoidable interpretation is that Jesus is speaking to the church. What a beautiful thing. Have we ever, I mean, yes, we have, but so often as we go through uh, the Gospels, we see Jesus speaking to his disciples, to the unbelieving crowd, and to the religious. As we get into the epistles and the church is born, we see the apostles speaking by the Holy Spirit, the heart of God, to disciples, unbelievers, and the religious. And so at times when we're in the the gospels or the epistles, we have to uh, make the application to you and I on a given Sunday, Wednesday, or whenever we're studying the scriptures, we have to make the application to us by reason of applying what was said to them. Here, (laughs) boy, there's no wiggle room. There is no wiggle room out of this. This is a word from Jesus to the church. And so the application of this word is then therefore subsequent to the heart of the listener. He's walking in their midst. He's holding the body of Christ, the ecclesia, 
the church, not the physical building, but this body. He's holding them in his hand. And when they gather, he's walking in their midst. And this is what he says to them. He says, I know your works. And he uh, brings out these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven uh, different aspects of his commendations. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. What great commendations. I mean, the Lord, so gracious, he comes in and and tells them uh, this, I want to commend you. Now, the word works and labor there is twofold. It uh, works is where we get our word energy. It, it is uh, agron. So that energy, I, he says, I, I know your energy. And the labor is another word that can be defined as toil or trouble or weariness. So he knows, he says to them, I know how energetic you are and the things that you toil at and that are uh, troublesome and that make you weary. He uses the word patience in verse 2 and verse 3, which can simply be defined as endurance. I, I've watched you patiently go on and on and on. You, you endure. When he says you can't bear those who are evil in verse 2, uh, the word bear really has to do with receiving or carrying. And he's telling the Christians in the church at Ephesus that Man, it is, I commend you that when those who are evil are in your life path, you you don't receive them. You don't just carry them along as if everything is okay. And to be surrounded by evil would cause or necessitate them to persevere the word persevere there means to be carried or sustained so they have carried on they have sustained their uh, labors their works their patience their inability to uh, bear those who are even they've and they've tested men have come into their midst and said that, you know, we are, quote, unquote, the voice of God to you. We are apostles. And and this church in Ephesus tested that. Obviously, there were gifts of the Spirit uh, active in the life of those believers where they could exercise discernment. And someone would come in declaring that they... We're speaking the truth of the word of God because they were self-proclaimed apostles. And these Christians in the church of Ephesus were like, no, you know, we've tested that and we find that they were liars. We continued to persevere and labor. 
And in all of that energy, we didn't get sick or faint, the word weary there. We didn't become faint-hearted or sick. Wow. Great uh, commendations. But we read in verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. The word nevertheless draws much attention. Uh, Throughout scripture, that word is used in the New Testament 38 times. Probably one of the most um, often heard or even perhaps best known among those of you who read your Bible, study your Bible, would of course be Jesus' words in each one of the Gospels when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane knowing what was coming the next day, the, the crucifixion of the Son of Man, the Son of God willingly giving his life for the sin of all humanity, and yet him, you know, appealing. You hear the heart of the man, Jesus the man, when he says to the Father, Abba, if it be possible, let this cup of what, what's about to happen to me, I, I've seen it foretold, you've told me it's going to happen, and I'm prepared as best as I can as a human being to go through this. Let it pass from me if possible. Nevertheless, right? You're all familiar with that's where that word comes. Not my will, but your will, thy will be done. And so the answer that was a request of Jesus. Do you, you ever read it that way? It's like Jesus has a prayer of, Lord, if it's possible, let this happen. And the Father's answer was, there's no other way. Now, maybe you walked through those doors this morning with things that you would like to see different, that are hard, that are cross-bearing in your life, painful. They deal with your flesh, they deal with your weaknesses, they deal with sin that may exist or be going on in your life and, and you're like, Lord, could you just take this from me if it's possible? And his answer is not right now. No, there's no other way. Peter used the word nevertheless when he was beginning his message to the religious, Acts 24, uh, 24, or continuing his message, nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, but I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Paul used the word nevertheless often, Romans 5.14. He said, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul talked about the veil 
being taken away. He said, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. You talk about eyes being opened, going from blindness to to seeing, from darkness to light, from no understanding to understanding at all. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. I don't know about you, but lately my brain is filled with a lot of different thoughts. I don't know. Probably been filled with a lot of thoughts for a lot of years. But, um, you know, last year when I had a heart attack and then went through bypass surgery, me and Al are brothers now. You're brain begins to think about life and, you know, navigating forward. And uh, the Lord gave me a verse years ago as my brain would often uh, entertain much thinking and many different thoughts. And this is the verse the Lord gave me. It's from Scripture. It's from the Psalm. He says, from the Proverbs, Commit your works unto the Lord and your thoughts will be established. Commit your works unto the Lord. What you do, whatever you're doing, Art, do it as unto me and I will, I'll settle all this swirling around that's going on in your brain. I will establish your thoughts. And you talk about the veil being taken away in those who are lost or backslidden or trying to figure out what's going on in in life. Oftentimes, and some of you might have even recalled that my counsel to you has been that counsel that God gave me. If you're unsure of what's happening from day to day, commit your works to the Lord and he'll settle those thoughts. The author of Hebrews used the word nevertheless. He said, now, uh, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's not fun to be corrected spiritually, you know, hit on the behind. Oh, excuse me, maybe that's not correct these days. I don't know. It's not fun. But if we allow that correction, that chastening of the Lord, if we allow it to be a thing that trains us, it bears fruit, spiritual fruit in our lives. Nevertheless, Used twice here in the book of Revelation. But we're told, Jesus says, even though you're very energetic, very patient, very labor, uh, labor-filled, if you will, you're, you're discerning, you're wise, and all that. This, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. The word left, if you're taking note this morning, important for 
interpretational purposes means to be insensitive, to lay aside, to omit, or send away. To be insensitive, to lay aside, to omit, or send away. So what is Jesus saying to them? He's saying, even amongst all of those things that I commend you on, the thing that is troubling me about you is that you've become insensitive to me. You've begun to lay me to the side and even omit me from what's happening in your life in a way in which you kind of send me away. And as we said that he To each of the churches, the Lord introduces himself. He has what we call uh, the condition of the church and then a, a statement that brings a solution uh, to what's going on. He observes this problem and then he, he says this, here's the solution. Verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So as we talked about, uh, the Lord would make these observations, give commendation, and then make observation, and then bring a solution to what he has observed needs correcting, and and then in this particular instance provides a consequence if that correction is not heeded, we see his solution is to have them remember, first of all, I call it the four R's, maybe you've heard that phrase uh, placed in verse five uh, before, the four R's, remember, Repent, return, or remove. Remember, repent, return, or else I'll remove. And in the remembering of uh, from where you've fallen, from where, from where did you fall? What he's talking about is Is there a time in your life, O Christian, in the church of Ephesus, that you can remember that you didn't walk with me, you didn't know me, I wasn't Savior, I wasn't Lord, you were in this world without hope? Remember that. And I can't speak for anybody else except myself to know that I can point to a period of time in my life where that was absolutely the case. I was in this world without hope. And these words, they should jar. They should ignite. They should move us to, again, go to that place. It says, remember from where? It's a place. It's... it's, It's a real place in the chronology of our lives. 
that we were fallen. We were not walking in faith with God. Now, if you can't remember a time like that, 30 years of uh, pastoral ministry, there have been times when I've met an individual or three that say, you know, I just, I can't ever remember. I always loved God. Or, you know, I always just, me and Jesus were always talking, always talking. And I don't just, you know, account that at all. If someone's testimony is their testimony, okay? And true enough. But scripture is scripture. And more often than not, in someone's life that that might have been the case, what I find is that there was an encounter moment where the Jesus that they felt that they always were close to or knew or always believed in God or whatever, that there was an encounter and they saw themselves apart from God. They saw themselves without the indwelling of Christ and what that would look like. And there was a great humbling and a great confession of, oh God, I'm a sinner and I need your saving grace. And that the mercy and kindness of our Savior came at such a moment. And that's what Jesus was telling them in Ephesus to remember. Remember what it was like when it was just brand new? Hallelujah! You can say hallelujah right now. It's exciting to have walked with the Lord for any number of years and still be excited about the Lord. Amen? Amen. It's exciting to have walked with the Lord for a number of years and still be excited about the Lord. But it's like way exciting to remember when it was first exciting to come to know who Jesus is. And if you've never come to know who Jesus is, if you're watching at home, this is your moment. He is saying to you, I love you and I want to spend my life in you. Will you invite me in? Remember, repent. The word, many of us in the church have heard this often. It means to turn and go a different direction. So if in the life of a Christian in the church at Ephesus, they had forgotten what it was like to be apart from God and without hope, and he wants them to remember that. It means that the direction they were going in, he wants them to turn and go in a different direction. And that direction in which he says is a direction in which they do the first works. Repent, rem uh, remember, repent, and return. Do the first works. What were the first works in the life of <clears throat> anyone who was lost and got found, who was blind and can now see, who was not saved and became saved. It's, it's a consuming thing that Jesus becomes the person on our lips all the time. It's, 
It's like I can't talk about anything else except the Lord and how the Lord is at work in my life and, and my goodness, what he's doing in my heart and what he's doing in me and through me. And Come back to that. Purpose to come back to that. Remember, repent, return, and do the first works. Or else, boy, there's that phrase just kind of really jumped out at me at this particular study through this book. He said, or else, you know. Better do what I said, or else, you know. You ever heard that phrase? Well, what's the or else? The fourth R is remove, and it's it's a treacherous, treacherous, hear me, treacherous promise he says or else I will come to you when quickly I'll come to you quickly and I'll remove what your lampstand from its place verse 20 of chapter 1 the lampstands are the churches I'll remove your place as an active part of the, my body. I'll remove it. I'll remo- In other words, I'll remove my presence from your place. And one of the saddest things to ever see or experience is a, a church that has a name that is a group of people that gather and the presence of the Lord is absolutely not there. How is that even possible when he said, if two or three gather in my name, I am there in their midst. How is that possible? If all that's going on in that group of people is labor, activity, being patient, even exercising discernment, and all, but there's no love for the person, the work of Jesus. Such sobering, isn't it sobering? It was like, wow. Man, it convicts me. So, any of you who have been in uh, business management or even parenting is a great illustration. You've heard the sandwich principle? Okay, Yes, no. In the sandwich principle, when you're talking to someone to educate them uh, and grow them and inform them and all of that. So in the sandwich principle, you start out with something good. And then in the middle, you then lay in there what needs improvement or needs to be worked on. And then at the bottom of the half of the sandwich, you put something good again so that you can bite this thing and not get sick, right? I mean, it's like... So what does the Lord do? He gives this heavy kind of powerful, we're only going to get to one church today, powerful commendations, observations, solution, and now he's going to commend them one more time. Notice in verse 6, he says, but, and there's that definitive uh, Inductive Bible study separate, but and now I'm going to separate from what I just did with you to this. He says, but in verse 6, this, uh, this you do have, this you have, uh, 
that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Wow. Powerful. Who were the Nicolaitans? And what were their deeds? I know you're chomping at the bit to know, so. Okay. A very old guy named Arrhenius, he wrote in around uh, the second century, around 200. He described the Nicolaitans this way. The Nicolaitans are the followers of that Nicolas. So there was a, a, a man who espoused these things that the Nicolaitans followed. They were followers of that Nicolas, who was one of the seven first ordained to the diocate of the apostles. In other words, he was placed as an, as an apostle, but it wasn't the apostles that placed him. And the character of these men, Arrhenius goes on to say, was plainly pointed out in uh, John's letter here that they were indifferent to the practices of adultery and the sacrifice to idols. Uh, Hippolytus, who wrote now in about 300, uh, and he was a student of Arrhenius, he wrote, quote, There are, however, among the Gnostics diversities of opinion, but Nicholas has been a cause of widespread combination of these wicked men. He departed from the correct doctrine and was in the habit of incalculating indifferencies both in life and food. So just in those two historians, we have a, a brief picture of the Nicolaitans that they changed biblical New Testament doctrine to fit their own practices. They... Uh, embraced things like adultery and offering of sacrifices to idols. But what's most known about the Nicolaitans is that others have emphasized that the word itself described them. It's a combination of two words, uh, nikaio and laios in the Greek. And what those two words mean are to conquer the people. So the role of a Nicolaitan in the New Testament church was not to be a servant to the people, but to engage in a hierarchy where in their high status, they conquer the people. Hence, we have in the New Testament church today, the establishment of, of clerical hierarchy where supposedly, you know, the more spiritual or studied or whatever you are, the, the greater kind of individual you are in the eyes of God. And if someone would come into the, the church at large and begin to flaunt that kind of position by reason of the robe or the collar, you remember back in the uh, mid-1800s, the pulpit for the preacher was like way up here. And all the people were down here. 
a separation where the clergy is higher than the disciple? Whoa, time out. Are we not all the same at the foot of the cross? The cloth is the same down there. It's bloodied. It's dirty. And it's what Jesus bled for. It's called flesh. And no robe can cover that. No collar can change that. No letters at the end of a name can erase that. And for a Savior who who is nothing but love for him to say, you don't like them or their deeds, which I also hate. It's like, whoa. He's really against the whole hierarchy thing, to put it lightly. And then he closes with this. If you have an ear to what I'm saying, O church at Ephesus, if you have an ear, this little thing on the side of your head that has, there's two of them, you know, two ears, one mouth, because it's probably best to hear more than we speak. But is the ear attuned to, to spiritual truth? He who has a spiritual ear let him hear what the Spirit is saying to who? The church. Okay, so I'm just going to say it over again because it needs to be you know, reinforced. The church is not a building. The church is not a group or a society. The church is a living organism, the body of Christ. And if you have become a Christian by way of committing your life to Christ, acknowledging that you and I are a sinner in need of Jesus' saving blood, we enter the body of Christ by new birth. And as a part of the body of Christ, we're We're given a spiritual ear to hear what the Spirit is saying, not only to the body as a whole, but to the individual. Is he speaking to you? Are you listening to him? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to him or her, to the church, because he has this great promise of reward. Notice verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. To him who overcomes, Like what one commentator said, he said that we often have looked at the phrase of overcoming in an exaggerated way. Quote, David Guzik, who's at our men's retreat in February, he says, 
we, unusual, we usually think of overcoming in a dramatic terms of overcoming sin in spiritual warfare. But here, Jesus seems to be speaking of overcoming their coldness of heart and lack of love marked by being insensitive, laying him aside, sending him away. So maybe there's no deep, huge, deep sin, right, that this word is saying to overcome. But what he is saying is, is there a lack of love? Has there been a propensity to become insensitive to him? To set him aside or send him away? For he who overcomes that by repenting, returning, doing the first works, remembering when we first came, he says, I'll give to them uh, to eat from the tree of life, which is, in, in other words, back to the presence of God in a daily, ongoing, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day life. Your presence, O Lord. What a powerful word to the church. What a powerful word to this fellowship. What a powerful word to my heart. What a powerful word to yours. Will you pray with me? Lord, it's a holy moment because this word searches deep. There's an impossibility to not hear your gentle, powerful voice speaking. And you speak, Lord, to each one of us. And you speak in a way in which only those things that are specific to me, specific to the individual, apply. Lord, we want to be a church in this community that is known for its love for Jesus. But more than that, I would say each one of us can hear you calling us, speaking to us individually, corporately. So Lord, we've listened. And while we're praying right now, maybe there's someone here this hour is willing to say, yes, Lord, that's me. I, I put you to the side. Oh, I was busy doing religious things and my, my morality seems to be okay, but Lord, my love for you has waned. And if that's you, the 
This morning, he's calling you back. And you can respond. We can respond by simply just saying, okay, Lord, here I am. Take all of me again. I'm holding nothing back. I'm all yours. Do what you want to do. you do that, he hears you. And Lord, we're so grateful this morning that you hear us. That you're so gracious and patient and kind. And we come to close our time with you and together to thank you that you are the God who sees and loves us anyway. In Jesus' name.